Thanks for pressing play. We live at a time of radical acceleration in the creation of very different futures in market category after market category, and of course, in the world overall. Things are changing so rapidly right now, life and business can feel challenging and threatening, while at the same time, representing great opportunity. As we move from the old ways of living, working and playing to new and different ways, there's a lot to think about, talk about, and a lot of new and different actions we can take. On this episode, we get into how to make sense of all of it, from the power of backcasting to create different futures, to what business leaders can learn from Ukraine's President Zelensky, uh, why communities matter, and much, much more. You see, our guest today is Gina Bianchini, founder and CEO of Mighty Networks. She's back, and she's one of my favorite guests. She's actually in the business of creating different futures. You see, Gina has raised over $67 million in top-tier venture capital. She's been a a pioneer in the digital and particularly social space with a vision for creating a platform for businesses and creators to build communities. Also, pay special attention to Gina's thoughts on using technology as a destructive or a constructive tool in the world. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine calls us, quote, the best business podcast. And then there are some podcast reviewers who call us overrated and not worth it. Whatever you call us, we're the number one podcast for business people who value real, different dialogue. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. Did you have your heat cranking this morning? I did. I, you know, it, it hasn't been too cold, but, you know, this is basically one step up from camping. My <laughs> office at this point is one step up from camping. <laughs> well, you look like the camping agrees with you, Gina. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And it's just so nice to see you. And it's like, great to see you God, too. I am, I'm like such a fangirl of all the stuff that you're doing. And like, I like your new people and you know, the, the super consumers. I like went back and I read that dude's book. That's a good dude right there, just, isn't he? He's a good dude. Yeah. Really interesting. Great stuff. Well, and it's been fun since we started Category Pirates because uh, like all of our prior work that the three of us have done, you know, we include it and we've been able to really expand upon um, super consumers and, and connect it to category design very powerfully. Yeah. No, I think it's I think it's just been fantastic. Well, thank you. I'm going to spend the whole time here just telling you all the ways that I think you guys are just really writing fantastic stuff that is helping me as a entrepreneur, as a strategist, as a marketer, like all of the above. So it's just been some really great stuff. I'm so stoked you feel that way. We're writing it for you. Well, it's working then. I'm curious what other business media do you consume, whether it's a podcast or newsletters or magazines or newspapers or... You know, it's a great question. I've started to not consume that much stuff that um, I I think is as certainly as good. 
I have been playing around with, uh, actually, I think I found her through your guys's post about the, how to be one of the top 1% of business newsletters. The, I think her name's Kobe Sanchez or Cody Sanchez. Cody Sanchez. Yeah. 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 She's impressive. She's a rock star. I really like, I think she's super interesting. And I have also found myself kind of exploring more high ticket courses. So there's a woman named Danielle Leslie who write, who, you know, has put something together called course from scratch. And it is, you know, in the thousands of dollars for an online course community and, and kind of goes up from there, but does a really great job of showing sort of step-by-step day-by-day, you know, how to build a course from scratch, how to grow, you know, grow your course from, you know, and, and specifically she focuses in on high ticket courses. So high ticket courses, small number of members helping you start it from scratch and then scaling it up over time. So like, those are the things that I like, I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention. The, the, the other thing, how do you, I keep wanting to call it wrong, the wrong thing. I think it's called like Farnham street. I always say like Farnham street, but I think it's not that. It's this guy here. What's the guy's name? Shane Parrish, Shane, Shane Parrish. Parrish. And it's, it's Farn, uh, Farnham. <laughs> F-A-R-N-A-M. But you know how you like, especially when you spend a lot of time by yourself, like just make up what something <laughs> yes. says. Yeah, that's me. That's me with, with Farnham, Farnham Street, Street. It looks like it's called. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I, so, I, I, and you know, sometimes when I do that, I, um, mm-hmm. I just use that term forever. So for example, Keanu, I always have to try to say it properly, Reeves, is yeah. from Canada. And so, you know, as a Canadian, you sort of track the success of Canadians and it's fun. But anyway, for whatever reason, in the beginning, when he first started to come out, I couldn't get my, my mouth around Keanu. So, and given he's Canadian, I just started calling him Canoe Reeves. And so I just call him Canoe. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> that it, that it totally works. And that's where that totally um, works. one of my other favorite ones is Carbodingulator. You know, there's so much technological babble speak that early in my career, I just sort of made up a bunch of words to sort of signify all of that. So, you know, when you have to um, de- disconnect your deconfibrillator from your carbodingulator through the API, <laughs> you know, it's sort of that. And all of a sudden, carbodingulator is just like a word, like as, as if it's a thing. It's beautiful. I saw. Oh, so I. So, again, I was at this conference yesterday. I saw one of the best category design presentations in like eight minutes. It was, it was, it was a masterclass in category design. It's a company called coalition and they do cyber insurance and their category that they have is active insurance. And what is active insurance? Active insurance is basically not only are they after the fact helping you with you know, obviously replacement or, 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 um, again, in the case of cybersecurity, you see a lot of, um, uh, ransomware attacks right now, Yeah, but they are utilizing the data that they are collecting from all of the different data points that they have within that organization 
to be proactive. So for example, they gave the, the example of a company that had clearly someone had just downloaded malware. And before the malware could spread further, they essentially pinged that the chief security officer of that company, and they were able to contain it and then basically push it back. So it didn't actually turn into a full-fledged cyber, you know, cyber attack. So that's an example. And I thought a very concrete example of active insurance. And you start to think to yourself, you're like, well, that makes a lot of sense. Like, why isn't more people doing it? And he was, he was really, really good at the from to, like, this is the way it used to be. This is the way it is now. And I am telling you, it's a guy named uh, Josh Mata is the CEO. Joshua Mata is the CEO. And I got to say, it was, it was really impressive. Very cool. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Do you want... You need, you need all the, you know, we all need all the examples we can get. So yes. I, that was a good one. Well, and we launched category design on the world in the hopes that more entrepreneurs would have more success once they realize that companies and products can't speak for themselves and they can't win the better race, that that's a, a pathway that's to right. disaster. And so every time we see one of these, we just go, yeah. And, you know, I always want to send them an email or, or a text and say, uh, have you read up on category design or are you just naturally doing this? Oh, no, this this guy clearly, clearly had someone in his organization or him, you know, new category design. Because I was like listening to him and he's like, and we're bringing to the world a new category of active insurance. And I'm just like, okay, this guy clearly is. Yeah is doing it. If they say those words, yeah. Exactly. I was like, oh yeah, you totally are. I got it. I had a fun one recently in this same um, area. Have you heard of this uh, home composter called Lomi? L-O-M-I? Lomi? Yes. I've seen, I've seen that on, uh, on Instagram. Yeah. So unbeknownst to us, the it's two founders, two actually Canadian guys, lots of experience, multi, multi-time, you know, entrepreneurs, and they create this incredible device. And the amazing thing about the Lomi is you put all your crap in the house into it. And the quality of dirt of the Lomi apparently is like meaningfully higher than sort of good compost dirt that you would normally buy at your local uh, gardening store. And they've sort wow. of done some studies with that and this and that and the other. And it turns out there's a massive demand for high quality planting dirt in the world that there are increasing deserts where there is no good dirt. And anyway, and of course their point of view is that garbage is human made. There's no such thing as garbage in nature. And so they're trying yeah. to get rid of waste uh, with this new incredible um, device. Well, it turns out, so they did this video. I can send it to you if you want. And I'm watching this video yeah. and I'm going, this is about as legendary as category design marketing gets. Like, it's weird. Well, come to find out, long story longer, they've read all the shit. They've listened to all the shit. They read Super Consumers. They actually engaged Eddie to be an advisor. And Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and last week, or I think it was last week, uh, Eddie and I had a really powerful conversation with the two founder guys. And it's just... You know, and they're having, I mean, I can't share the numbers, but I mean, the success is insane. 
great. I mean, it, the numbers are hard to imagine. And now they're building such an ecosystem, Agena, that there are companies who make products with packaging that they identify as loamable so that when you buy a whatever and it comes with all this nasty packaging that normally goes to a landfill, they market the fact that their, their junk is, uh, you can put it in your loaming. And there's, I can't remember wow. the number, but there's over a hundred companies already doing that. Anyway, long story, way longer, uh, meeting the guys. I love long stories. Yeah. Great guys. Great conversation. And, you know, for them to say to Eddie and I, hey, look, uh, you know, we started consuming all your shit and we kind of built the company around this idea of category design. And uh, we didn't just launch a cool product and their numbers are, I mean, they haven't even been in the market a year. And if I told you the number, you'd right. fall off your chair. I mean, it is an insane right. up into the right growth rate. And so anyway, long story, really longer. It just, it's so cool to meet entrepreneurs who discover the secret power of category design. And then when you look at their shit in the world, you go, Oh, come on. They got, they got to, <laughs> they got to know, they got to know this shit. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, and that's what I think is actually, it, it almost feels like a, uh, a not so secret club when you see it, you know, it's like, I saw it yesterday and I was like, I, I, I guarantee you that, they are paying attention. And it's interesting. Once you have the category lens, you see it everywhere or you see the lack of see, it everywhere. Correct. That's correct. And I, I, one of the other things that I think is so interesting is it's in such stark contrast to this other trend that I'm seeing that is really noticeable when you notice it, which is, which is finance speak. So it's it's all of these words that get used by by public company, uh, you know, CFOs, CEOs, or people that are just choosing words that their audience has to actually translate in real time. So thing, you know, and and you can always kind of tell the tells with words like headwinds, brand erosion. Um, softening is one of my favorites. There's the, no the other one I like love is slowdowns. negative revenue growth. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. Negative revenue growth. I have not heard that one. Isn't that oh good? Oh my God. I'm going to have to add that to my, I'm going to have to add that to my list. The other one I love, and it's, wow. it's not in finance, but it's in the same genre of what we're talking about. And I'll never get the first time a realtor said it to me. I almost peed myself. So this realtor, this is many years ago now takes me to see this dump of a house. And, um, when we, and I, you know, I'd seen pictures of it and shit. So I, I knew what I was expecting to see, but when yeah. we get there, the realtor says, uh, and as you can tell, this home has a lot of deferred maintenance. Another great one. Isn't that to me, deferred maintenance and negative revenue growth are kind of in the same bucket. That <laughs> They are really a lot. And it was, what was so interesting to me is like, I think I might be one of the few people that are like just kind of, I would go as far as to say almost offended by this finance speak, this like euphemistic, you know, it, somebody saying something like, oh, we only, you know, we know that these are our evangelists and how important they are to us. But, you know, we just tried to raise our prices uh, 
after the fact and they revolted and then we had to reverse it and it was really hard. But it's like, well, then why'd you do it in the first place? You know, like, yes, you can't you, you can't have it both ways. The other thing, I don't know if you find this, that you know, I've always been uh, tuned to business babble and have worked hard to be a student of languaging, you know, the strategic use of language yeah. to change yeah, yeah, thinking. Yeah. And uh, as a result of all of that, when you know somebody will speak an entire paragraph of business babble to you, and somewhere along the line, Gene, I develop this, this statement when people do that. I, I just look at them and go, hey, just tell me what you're telling me. Right. What are you trying to tell right. me? I know you're trying to tell me something. Yeah. Tell me what you're trying to tell me. Yeah. The other interesting thing about finance speak bleeding more into the mainstream. And I think we're going to see. I like that. Yeah. Tell me what you're telling me. Just tell me what yeah. the fuck you're telling me. <laughs> um, there's finance speak that has, um, that is emerging more in the mainstream. Um, and it's, so I always find it interesting when niche languaging moves out of its niche and an example oh, yeah. of that I've seen over the last decade or so is the term due diligence. It used to be, in my experience, that term only existed in a few places. It invested, it existed in the investment slash VC world. Yeah. So you're going to make an investment, you're going to do due diligence. Um, and then it existed when talking about doing an M&A transaction, right? But it's uh -huh. sort of... If my memory's right, and listen, I've had a couple of whiskeys in my life, but um, if my right, memory's right. right, it was those sorts of use cases for that phrase. And now you'll be talking to a friend who's maybe looking for a new job and she'll say to you, oh, well, you know, I'm doing my due diligence on a couple of companies and yeah. we do due diligence on candidates now, right? Yeah. my dil or, or they'll shorten it to sound really smart to diligence. We'll have to diligence that. Yeah. We turn it into a verb. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So I I uh not not a not a fan. No. Of this trend. Why not? This trend. Because I think that it it just adds one level of complexity to an already increasingly complex world. Hmm. So the world is like there's a lot to keep track of. So the idea that now you have to also keep track of the the translation between softening negative revenue growth headwinds erosion you know uh, also the overuse of the terms either trust or authenticity or authentic experiences like and and when you ask somebody what those things mean they don't mean shit to them they don't actually know what they mean but because they sound good you've gotten so many people over the years that are like nodding vigorously without necessarily knowing what it what it actually means yes i couldn't agree more and the interesting thing is what is the purpose of the languaging they are using and tell me, I'm, so I'm, I'm asking this as a question. The language you're describing, in my experience, is often used uh, as a smokescreen. In other words, I don't really know what the fuck to say here. So I'm going to say some shit that sounds like nouveau right. shit. Uh, and I think right. I sort of know what it means, but I want to get a bunch of heads nodding. And I'm sort of going to talk for the sake of talking. And I'm going to use a bunch of this needlessly complex languaging in order to make yeah. myself smart saying very yeah. little. Yes. 
I, I think you nailed it with needlessly complex as the means of sounding smart. The other thing, though, I will say, and, and I don't know, I think that this is actually true, which is some people get away with the needlessly complex and the head nodding. And, and again, I think it just it depends on sort of what the words are. And I don't think it's moving the world forward. I don't think the needlessly complex, the need to change, you know, to, to do the translations. I just, I think, you know, life is too short. Things are moving too fast. And if you look at who is winning, it's actually pretty, pretty stark that it is people that can be blunt and it's people that can be clear and it's people that can offer somebody a path forward in really concrete and obvious ways. And I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, category pirates is, is as successful as, uh, as it is, is because you guys have really figured out some ways to do that. That's very, very kind of you to say. I'm not even that nice. <laughs> um, you know, the interesting thing to me I'm about not this. Nice. <laughs> well, I like it. Um, the interesting thing to me on this is sort of the context of the languaging matters a lot. So, for example, in the late 90s, when the word monetize or monetization started to emerge, my initial reaction was this sounds like business babble bullshit. Right. 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 Uh, I have come to accept this bullshit word. Uh, because I realize that it is actually, as it's been used over time, it's not just a replacement for how we're going to make money. So in a digital business model, monetization is a broader conversation than just how we make money. And in the beginning, I thought it was a bullshit, you know, Silicon Valley speak for fucking make money. So in that case, introducing complexity ends up being helpful over time because it's in this case, broadening a conversation, yeah. right? So there was a, the purpose of the word, I don't, I, I can't remember in the beginning, but over time, the purpose of the word is to have a bigger conversation about multiple ways in which we might quote unquote monetize the business. Right. So I think mm -hmm. in the beginning that might've been used to obfuscate, but today I actually think it has moved into a valuable kind of position. Whereas I can't imagine uh, uh, negative revenue growth, meaning anything other than I'm trying to obst obst ob obst obfuscate. <laughs> obfuscate. Um, obfuscate. It's sort of like a Canadian word. Off-you-skate. <laughs> or Canadian <laughs> phrase. <laughs> I love that. The You know, the other word that I fought for a really long time, really long time, is content. Hmm. is content. And I have come around to content and to embracing the term content, but I also just think that content remains a limited term in terms of building businesses, in terms of scaling, in terms of all of the things that, um, when you are limited by content alone, you are, you are doing more work than, um, and, and creating, I would argue less value than, you know, in other models, but I have come around to, 
there is a role and a very important role for content to play. And obviously, you know, you guys are, are so good at it. Um, well, thank you. So good at it. You know, the interesting thing, uh, we did a category parts a bit ago um, on content marketing and how content marketing is actually content free marketing. And sort of, I, you know, it's so funny. I have that literally printed out. <laughs> no, that's not the one that I have printed out. The one that I have printed out right now, that's my next one. It's so big that I'm going to have to like go get it on my, my Kindle. Um, but is, oh, is this one the big product lie? Um, yeah. I'm excited about this. I one. can't and wait so to hear like, what you think after you read that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and if I was, if I was smarter and, and, you know, better organized and I'm, I'm decently organized, but I, it's like, I could have, I, I could have done better. I would have read it before our conversation. Yeah. Because, I'd love to hear what you think about it because you are yeah. a, I think a lot of people would call you a product oriented or product driven founder CEO. Um, yeah. and we had more, uh, unsubscribes after that letter than I think any other other letter. And my favorite unsubscribe was a person who said, I just don't think I agree with the editorial direction. <laughs> Are you serious? Oh yeah. Yeah. The, 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 you know, it was, it, it's upsetting for people in marketing when we wrote the big brand lie. Um, and that one was a huge, huge letter as well. Uh, yeah. This one in Silicon Valley, the big product lie was upsetting in a very different way and in a, um, in a way that r seemed to rock people's identity that, that some people didn't like. Yeah. What, um, again, I'm, I gotta, I gotta read it. I print it out so that I can do well, you know, I can like take notes and really kind of have that there. Um, what do you think that identity is that people, have related to to product that it's about the product product genius yes and i say this as an entrepreneur and creator who loves products who spends a disproportionate amount of time every week creating content products if you will right, and right. and if you ask me about my products i want to fucking tell you all about them <laughs> So, so I understand that. And as a former CMO and so forth, you know, always a joy to sit down with the product and engineering teams and work on the product. So I understand this, um, the, the product is, as my child, right? But right. what has happened over time is if you, there's over 50,000 books on Amazon that are business strategy, marketing strategy, entrepreneurship, yeah. roughly. And of course, I haven't read all of them, but between Eddie Cole and I, we've read many of the most influential ones. Right. And the vast majority of them have the almost identical mental scaffolding. And nobody stops to question the context that is the scaffolding. And the scaffolding essentially goes like this. Breakthrough new product innovations come out. They disrupt markets and take them over. And so Clayton Christensen, Michael Porter, it's all about, uh, it, it go back to Andy Grove, only the paranoid survive. When he says that, what he's mostly talking about is product innovation and innovators dilemma, 
is mostly about product innovation, somewhat business model, you know, and I'm not trying to be overly pejorative, but my point is the following. When all you have is a product lens, all you have is a product lens. And so when we say, oh, well, clearly the reason um, that uh, the iPhone beat the BlackBerry is because it's a better product. And BlackBerry rim failed to innovate on product. And if you go back and you read Innovator's Dilemma, it's all about how an innovative new product takes off. And by the time it achieves um, scale and the incumbent tries to launch a comparable innovative product, it's too late. And that's what happens. And that's why only the paranoid survive. We have to innovate on product and business model, but mostly product. Well, that's a great point of view, except that everything about it is 100% fucking wrong. Because that's not what happens. And here's the proof, simple proof. Google Docs is over 10 years old. Most people, myself included, would say Google Docs is a superior product, has a superior experience to that of Microsoft Office. As a matter of fact, if you made us have to write category pirates on Microsoft Office, I'd rather take a hockey puck to the nuts because collaborating um, on Docs is way more powerful than in Office. And so... It turns out that um, having a legendary product is only a third of it. Mm-hmm. Products can't speak for themselves, right? Right. And, and, and people assume that, well, we'll just show the world our new carbodingulator and they'll get it. Well, mm-hmm. you can hope that your product finds a place in a market or you can make that place. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference. And our general thesis is when you have a product lens, all you see are, well, these features or these capabilities beat those features and those capabilities. And that's part of the equation, but it's actually not most of the equation. And the aha here is that everything that we value, we get taught to value, including human life mm-hmm. itself. And so if you think that you know people should pay you, on average, $250,000 for an annual license to your software product, they have to agree with you that that's the value of that software product. That is a hundred percent an interpretation. Right. Nothing has any intrinsic value, including human life itself, as is evidenced by the world that we live in. And so you can either risk your product finding a place or you can make that place. And that's fundamentally the difference between a category lens and a product lens. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes, it makes perfect sense. And but yet, the entire business it's really world. scary. Yeah. I was going to say, it, it, you know, it's, it's scary to think about the value of what you are creating as being something different in a world and in a moment where, it, you know, 
so much is unknown that it gets a little scary thinking about, oh my gosh, am I going to do something different? And then it's not going to work or, and, and then the tension there is just this, you know, I, I, uh, I heard it sort of over and over and over again in the last few days of like first principles, first principle thinking, you know, really sort of looking at and thinking about um, what is it that your customer wants or needs or what is that job to be done? And it's um, the solution is not product alone. It just can't be. No, it it, just can't be. Well, the more exponential the product the more exponential the category design matters. Right. Right. That is, so right. if you fundamentally say that one of the core tenets of category design is category designers are creating a different future, mm-hmm. right? So at a high level in business and frankly in life, there are people who assume that the future is a continuation of the past. And there's others who assume that the future will be different than the past. And obviously both things are true, right? So then you say to yourself as a, as a business person, well, where do I want to spend my life, my career? Do I want to spend my life extending the past and the present into the future? Or Mm -hmm. do I want to create different futures? And those of us in our world, whether we've been explicit about it or not, have said, we want to create different futures. So if, the lens you are using to create a different future is a comparison product lens to what exists today in the world. You can't create a different future. The only way to create a different future is to situate your brain in that future and go, how does the world look now that we've already achieved what we want to achieve? And then standing in that future, you look back to the present and go, okay, what do I need to do? to drag the present into the future of my choosing, as opposed to do what most people do, which is say, Oh, I have a goal five years out. What do I need to do to get from here to there? Well, when you do that, whether you realize it or not, you are using yesterday's lens to create a future, which limits your ability to create that future because You have a reference point called the past as opposed to in category design. And Gina, you have done this yourself. You have come up with a vision for what you think the future could and should look like. And you build a world where that future can be realized. And then you say to people, hey, look, the future's over here. Let me show it to you. Right. And they have to be willing to make that from to leap with you. That's very different than building a better product than quote unquote, the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I have found to be such a helpful tool, even to get to the, the from two is to say, okay, it's two years in the future or it's 12 months in the future. What did we do? Where are we? And what did we do to get there? So almost starting with your plan of of telling the story from in a past tense. So we did this. We looked at this. Um, we hired these people and they were able to do X, Y, or Z. We took bets in this way or that way. But it, it's one of these things that I actually um, always try to... So in the mornings I get up, 
pretty early and I sit down with just like a stack of paper and I just kind of let my mind go. And so the first thing I do is I just write out over on the side, all the things that I woke up and thought about in the morning, like what was on my mind? Like, Oh, I got to check in on this thing. Or like, these are the things just get it all, all off out of my head and on a piece of paper. And then basically I, I seek to ask myself some questions like, we doubled revenue in six months. What, what did we do? You know, and then just use those kinds of backcasting. Mike Maples, one, one of our investors um, and a mutual friend of ours, um, he articulated it so well. And so I started doing it. And it is such a crystallizing technique to start to, one, live in the future to really visualize and make vivid that picture of the future and then work backwards from the future to where we are as opposed to, okay, where are we? Where do we need to go? Yes. And that idea of backcasting is pure genius. And it's, it's also a fun way to play a, a mental trick on ourselves. And there's yeah. a great story I, I love about this. Um, when Martina Navratilova, the world famous uh, tennis player, the greatest before yeah. the Williams sisters uh, retired, she went on Larry King when Larry King was the guy. And I remember distinctly, Larry asked her what it felt like to win Wimbledon for the first time. So she right, described right. how amazing it was and this and that. And then she said to him, but you know what, Larry, I knew exactly how it would feel. Because in my mind, I've been winning Wimbledon since I was five. Yeah. And one of the that, things, if you've beautiful. ever, did you ever do um, either affirmations or, or, or writing out your goals? You ever done those exercises? Yes. Yes. And so let me see if this triangulates with you. The most powerful technique I ever learned in those things is to write it in the present tense as though it's already happened. Yes. Yes. And so, and then re read it to yourself as such. Yes. I, I think that for me, I did that first. And then for, what I'm finding is the backcasting is the most helpful and the most clarifying. And knowing, you know, knowing what, what that future that you're building towards looks like, it is, there is nothing that can replace it. And I think that only through taking those sort of first steps that you can get to even the from to, you can get to, you know, what is your uh, or your team's unique, you, you know, unique lens on where you want the world to go? What is it that you want people to be doing and the, and the kinds of culture and the kinds of societies that we're living in and, and how that works? Um, and obviously that's true. That's especially true when you're building, you know, community products and, and platforms. So one of the things, for example, that I think is so interesting is um, just take AI, take artificial intelligence. There is a whole set of people that are out there thinking that the that the the way the the most beautiful manifestation of the world is that you have your AI and it is truly something out of the movie her that it's like you are going to have this sort of centralized you know controlled by probably one company 
that it, and your AI is your best friend and your source of information and is going to be able to predict the things that you want from it. And, and, and like, I was listening to somebody just lay out this entire, um, picture of, of the way that they wanted the world to work. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, um, I don't want to live in that world. I like, I don't want to live in that world. Like that is not the kind of world that I want to live in. What I want to, what I want to do with technology, whether that is, and I think that there's an absolutely beautiful role for machine learning and AI and smarter and smarter software, not to make the software your best friend and your source of all truth and the main interaction that you you know that you have in the world but rather how how does ai or how does software in general make connections between people and play the role of amazing host and like imagine that that it, because when you when you have when you have a person in your life who can play that role of amazing host, your life gets better. You meet more interesting people. You have sort of the structure of conversations that are invigorating and interesting and fascinating. You feel you feel connected. You look around and it's like everybody, you know, especially if you're in a room where everyone is like 10 to 20% you know, better looking than you are, you feel like there is something a lot right, you know, about you and your life. And so when I think about the role that software can play in lives and communities and cultures and societies and civilizations, and you just kind of go up, you know, go up the stack from there, I want to live in a world where machine learning, AI, and software in general is is set up to play the role of an amazing host not your best friend. Interesting. So let me bounce something off you um, that we've been talking about and writing about of late. So um, obviously we were among the first to start talking about the native digital versus native yeah. analog reality, right? So if you're under 35, you grew up integrated with the machines and your primary reality is a digital first reality and the analog world is an adjunct or an add-on. Maybe an important one, but your primary experience of life is digital and that makes you a native digital. Okay, so when you take that lens and start using it broadly, here's an aha right, that's going on right now. Our assertion, Gina, is that what we're witnessing is the first true native digital war. The Arab Spring was kind of the beta, and it wasn't, of course, a war. It was more of a social uprising. But now we're seeing the first native digital war. And the aha here being uh, the following. Um, number one, you have a political leader in Zelensky who does selfie videos on Instagram with his cabinet. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know about you, but have you ever seen the elected leader of a democratic country of consequence doing selfie videos on, on, on Instagram? There hasn't been a reason to do selfie videos on Instagram from a war zone in, in just this way before. Uh, correct. So I, 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 but I even would, in, in I would regular governing. Right. But 
at the same point in time that there's been other means to be able to do that. And there's been experimentation. So keep going. Okay. So, so that's the first piece. The second piece is we are seeing because of the ubiquity of the cloud and of course, smartphones, we're seeing a massive breakthrough in citizen journalism. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when the war first broke out, I'm going back and forth between the three major networks on TV in the United mm-hmm. States, Fox, MSNBC, and CNN, but I'm on my computer. And when you are interstitialing back and forth between legacy media and future media, here's the, here's the instant aha. Twitter is crushing all three major networks in the United States. If you want to know what the fuck's really going on, you're on Twitter. And why? Because people are live streaming from their fucking bedrooms what's going on in Kiev. Right. Right. So, so A, Zelensky, even though he's not a native digital, he's only 44, so he's close. And he grew up, he's the, in my opinion, he's the Ronald Reagan because Reagan was, of course, called the quote-unquote great communicator. They're both actors. Reagan used the medium of the time. Zelensky's using the medium of the time. He's deputized the entire country to share his point of view and what's happening on the ground in the digital world. Okay, so that's that's sort of big point A. Mm -hmm. Big point... Oh, and one other thing. All of the Russian soldiers are native digitals. They're 18, 20, et cetera. And they're conscripted. They're not volunteers. And most of them didn't even know they were going to war, right? And so they have smartphones. They're on TikTok. They're on Instagram. They're hearing Zelensky directly, who not only is fluent in Russian, he's a native Russian speaker, right? Okay. What happens with Putin? Putin makes the decision to communicate via legacy native analog channels, mostly TV and print media. Whether he realizes it or not, makes a decision to fight the war in the analog world only and to communicate in the native analog world. As a result, he's lost the native digital war and it appears he's losing the native analog war. And as a result of Zelensky winning the native analog war by creating a native digital, a native, native digital. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, by creating a viral digital media flywheel of citizen journalists with him at the helm, he has been able to mobilize the world to levy the largest sanctions ever in the history of the world to to force major fortune 500 companies to stop doing business. Government didn't tell Coke to shut down. You and I did. Right. Right. So what's my point? Uh, Zelensky by fighting in the native digital world is producing results in the native analog world. He's getting Mm -hmm. Russia to be shut down. He's getting more money from foreign governments than could ever be imagined to come to his support. And he's rallied the support of mm-hmm. tens of millions of people around the world who are sympathetic to the Ukraine and are not to Russia. Right. In addition to all of that, not only did Putin decide not to compete in the native digital part of this war, he's now trying to shut down 
the native analog communications by restricting what people can say inside his own country. Mm-hmm. And so here's the big aha, and this leads to a question. We believe that history will look back at Putin's probably unconsidered decision to not fight a digital war. He didn't go out and grab a, a, an iPhone and start doing Insta selfies. He didn't do that. Will go down as one of the greatest blunders in war history, because if you believe what we believe, which is roughly 50% of the population today is native digital. And in the case of, of his fighters, virtually a hundred percent of them on the front line are native digital. He did not choose to even fight in a native digital world. Zelensky did. Zelensky took his success in the digital world and turned it into sanctions and billions of dollars in support. And I think if this thing plays out the way experts are saying, which is ultimately Russia will be forced to retreat, one of the things that we'll see is that you had a native analog leader who was ignorant of the native digital world. And that's part of why Putin is setting himself up for a loss. And we think that's analogous to what's going on in the business world today with native analog CEOs, not getting the importance of the native digital world that I believe you are a material part of creating. What say you Gina Bianchi? (laughs) I would love to say Yes. Like, like, let's wrap it up in a bow. And like, that that's it. I, I, I think it is part of it for sure. Um, but I, I don't think that understanding the channels is as powerful as do you have a message that works? And are you on the right side of history or, you know, are you surrounded by four people, whether you're analog or digital, if you are not actually getting real information as it looks like Putin does not get because there are four or five people around him and that is kind of it. So when, when you look at the blunder uh, first of all, I think it's going to be, a, I, I think we all have to expect a lot more pain. Like somebody like, Putin does not have a moral compass that says bombing civilians, women and children is not actually something that is cool or that that is, uh, you know, moral. He doesn't care. And so when you when you look at that, I think I think we are actually in for a little bit longer or a lot longer um, dynamic. Um, I also think that. What is beautiful about this moment is that. Zelensky has rallied so many people, and that would never have been possible through uh, through analog media. So I, I completely agree with you on that. Um, he has also done more for NATO, and the fact that we you know remember why NATO is needed uh, is, I think, really important. But I don't believe that it is so simple or or sort of black and white that it's about the communication medium um or the way that people use it as much as you know this should have never happened in the first place so i think an interesting question is 
if you have the right, you know, we talk about it and think about it as like your big purpose. What is the, your reason, you know, for your community to exist or, 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 you know, the purpose of your campaign or movement, what would have happened if the, um, if the purpose or message was not on the side of those that also understand the digitally native tools. I think that that's kind of an important, I think that's an important question, an important dynamic. The other thing is that the Russians, uh, to, to say that the Russians don't understand technology, they have they have actually held back on the things that they could be doing from a cyber war and, and, and you know, just ability to shut down Ukraine communications and dynamics across the world. And so there's just these, these, I I think it's just a little too simple. Um, And I also think that this has got to play out um, for us to know whether or not that is true or not. Hmm. So agree with you a hundred percent on the POV matters a lot, right? One of the things, and it's particularly germane to mighty networks. Um, In the business world today, everybody's talking about community. Oh, you got to build a community. Okay, great. And um, they don't understand, well, then why are we building it? And most importantly, what creates community? And ultimately, what creates community is a shared point of view, a shared ethos, a shared set of values, a shared set of interests, right? And so I agree with you a thousand percent. There's got to be... Uh, and we broke this down in category pirates. There's got to be a point of view that moves the world from one place to a different place. And the evangelist matters a lot. Yes. Right. And the yes. medium matters. The interesting thing about the medium is, you know, a uh, famous provocateur, Malcolm McLaren said the, um, the medium is the message. So yes. the thing that's happened here is you have the magic combination of, uh, radically different, super compelling point of view around a real problem called fucking a mass murder and potentially the start of World War Three, right? So there's a very real problem, and there's a point of view that emerges about that around how Ukraine is going to fight for its independence no matter what. And Zelensky's point of view more broadly is uh, we're fighting for all of you because if we go down, they're coming for the rest of the democratic world. So um, this is not just about Ukraine and he's convinced millions of people that he's right about that. So you have a radical point of view around a very urgent and horrible problem. uh, And you have an incredible evangelist. And then you add that to a native digital medium that scales. Yes. And a competitor in Putin who's not even playing in that domain. Right. And, and, uh, he has more tools in his toolbox that he can use, but they're all destructive tools as opposed to constructive tools. And I think Zelensky has utilized technology in constructive ways. Um, the, the one I, I, you know, and maybe it's because I just don't, I think everything you just said and led with was more compelling than this idea of like, if you're over 35, you're not paying attention, or if you're under 35, you are. And I just, I don't think that that is as black and white because a compelling point of view 
is a compelling point of view. A compelling point of view delivered with, it, it, you know, via increasingly compelling technology and medium that appeals to everybody. So I would, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I don't know that I lead with the digital native versus digital analog as much as, um, if you're not utilizing the tools effectively with that strong point of view, it may not matter. And I think that's really, to me, that is something that I take away um, and just think is really compelling. Yes. Yes. I, I very, very much agree. The fascinating part of all of this is Putin, whether he realized it or not, decided not to compete in this native digital world yet. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, he, you're, yeah. you're right. There may be a lot more coming on the cyber uh, security front, but at least on the media and communication side. Yeah. He hasn't even tried. Maybe tomorrow morning we'll see him walking around downtown Moscow doing uh, Insta selfies. Yeah. That's, that's not his playbook. That is not his playbook. What I love about this conversation is that I always learn something from you. So I, I don't, I don't have a lot more to, to necessarily add other than um, I think that these are the topics to be talking about. And I think that, I think that challenging the status quo, whether it is looking at, you know, how are we consuming media? How are, how are we, you know, as marketers and entrepreneurs and founders, how are we building not just product or markets, but entire categories? I, I think it's only becoming more and more important. And I think that that's what I feel really fortunate to call you a friend. <laughs> well, I'm very fortunate to call you a friend. And I think it's, you know, the reason this is so interesting as it relates to Gina slash Mighty Networks is at least the way I look at uh, a component of what you're doing is you are providing a platform for creating a radically viral uh, community opportunity, assuming they have a point of view, assuming they have an evangelist, et cetera, et cetera. But you're providing a tool set, a platform set that allows companies to mobilize their super consumers and create an environment where you've got a, a digital a native digital flywheel that is that is building and that ultimately helps grow the business. And I just think this is this it might be one of the biggest hiding in plain sight missings in business today. And I think there is an argument to be made that we're seeing um, Zelensky do something that we've never seen in the way yes. he has harnessed uh, let's just call it similar native digital thinking. Yeah, I think I think that's beautifully put. Well, Gina, it is great to see you. I'd like to see more of you. <laughs> I feel the same way. I feel the same way. So I will. I'm going to be following up after I finish uh, the big product lie. Excellent. I can't wait to hear what you uh, think after you read it. Awesome. All right, All right Gina. Thanks, stay Chris. legendary, my friend. Bye. Take care. You too. Bye. Well, there she is, 
my friend, the legendary Gina Bianchini. You can find her at MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with the people that you love and respect. You can uh, click on the share button on your uh, podcast player of choice, and you can email or text it to them directly. And we always appreciate your social media shares. Now, there is a seminal question that most CEOs and CROs have a hard time answering, which is, are you going to meet, beat, or miss your revenue number? That's where my friends at Clary come in. Clary is the first platform that empowers you to run revenue like an enterprise process. Now, marketing, sales, customer success, and finance teams can work together on revenue. And Clary's customers report a 12.6% increase in sales win rates. So visit Clary.com today. That's C-L-A-R-I.com today and learn how to optimize your revenue. Now, we'd like to thank you. Thank you so much for your time and attention. It means the world to us. Our good friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org, the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Our friends at Bottleneck.online, the world's first dedicated distant assistance. Check them out. If you need an assistant who is nowhere near you, but who's a real person, uh, check out Bottleneck.online today. My friends at Halo app are the world's first real relationship app where your digital friends are your real friends and there are no ads. Go to uh, H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P.com or go to your app store of choice and type in Halo app. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking. All rights remain perturbed, and we are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical... Uh, <laughs> technical execution around here and they build lockhead.com uh, show notes by gm simon and the bobus brothers rj and ex do our web development and cedric biros does our graphic and web design our law firm is weed and jack and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind also you should know your te- your spouse just texted it's okay you can go ahead and subscribe to category pirates go to categorypirates.com today and subscribe to Category Pirates. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Listen to Stevie Wonder. Tom Waits was right. And support freedom and democracy. Uh, You know, recently, um, I had not looked at our podcast stats for the better part of two months. I lost my my login credentials, and I couldn't even get in. Anyway, recently, we did look at some of our stats and, and so forth and so on. And unbeknownst to me, we do have listeners in both Ukraine and Russia. And I realize they may not be listening now, but on the off chance that you are uh, Ukrainian and you're listening, I want you to know we're sending thoughts, prayers, and money. And if you are in Russia and you stand against the uh, criminal acts of your government, I want you to know around here, we think you're heroes. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to uh, Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vladdy. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.